0: Welcome to the Pacing to Pacers podcast. I am Indy Stars Pacers editor Nat Newell. I am here with James Boyd, our Pacers insider. We are going to touch on the never ending injury saga of the team, a little bit of an update on how uh, Tyrese Halliburton is doing. Victor Oladipo is back on the court for the Miami Heat, so we'll touch on that. And then we're going to do a little bit uh, behind the scenes on uh, James's uh, excellent uh, Keeper Sykes profile that we posted earlier this week. So, Uh, Let's just start with the injuries. I mean, you know, Malcolm Brogdon's out again. I went back and looked it up. He's had uh, missed 130 games or he will have missed 130 games, counting the two this weekend for the concussion. uh, During his career, due to injuries to 16 different parts of his body. Um, Where are you at with Brogdon at this point, just in terms of, you know, how injury prone he seems to
1: have been? He just can't stay healthy. It's 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 a label now that'll probably follow him for the rest of his career. I believe this is his sixth NBA season. So at this point, I mean, he was kind of unlucky. Uh just give everyone kind of the breakdown. He actually got, got elbowed in the in the in the head by Evan Mobley, um, you know, rookie of the year candidate, really big dude. Um, in the fourth quarter of the game Tuesday, of the loss Tuesday against the Cavs. And he stayed in the game, finished the game out, had 12 points, 12 assists. But again, that's kind of just unlucky, but I mean, whether you want to call it unlucky, injury prone, whatever, the bottom line is the guy misses a lot of games due to injury. So um, I think that's one reason why the Pacers should probably look at moving him in the off season. It's like, do you really want to keep a guy around that's going to be, you know, 30 and, and injury prone? Or do you want to look at, you know, whatever assets you can get in return for him and kind of move on from that? So um, obviously he's, the headliner for the injury report. I mean, no one knew, really knew it. I don't think anybody was going to even ask about Malcolm um, until that happened. And then um, until Carlisle Carl- Carl- announced that, um, which is just a very unique situation to, to be in. I mean, they had a couple days off. You think everyone's going to get a little healthier and then boom, you're not healthy. You're actually worse off. And then um, he gave us update on miles Turner. He's still, you know, making progress, but not playing. So, I mean, Nat, you can touch on this a little bit, but I mean, we're getting down to that point where you where you want to see, you know, Miles Turner. You want to see T.J. Warren. You want to see T.J. McConnell. You want to see these guys. And there's only 15 games left, so there's not much time. And even for a guy like McConnell, you know, he I don't know if he's expected to be back. There's no timeline for him. But the biggest piece is T.J. Warren. Like, do you think he's going to play this season Nat? It doesn't seem like it. I mean, I, yeah, we're running out of time for him to play, and it's
0: it's. Uh, I, I mean, I always feel like there's an obligation to to point this to point this out, which is at least ninety nine point nine percent of professional athletes do whatever it takes to get on the court. Um, I also don't think people appreciate just how physically demanding being a professional athlete is, again, they get paid lots of money. They don't need your sympathy, but you, you should recognize that what they do is not, you know, does a lot to a body. I don't want to hear anyone telling, saying, you know, Malcolm Brogdon or TJ Warren or whoever is soft. There's a, you know, there, I mean, there certainly have been players throughout sports history who you could say that of, yeah. but if you, don't know it, you shouldn't be saying it. Um, it's just, it's just a tough, uh, you know, it, it, it can be very hard on someone's body. Although you can also can't deny that Malcolm Brogdon and, and has been injury prone. And now we're into almost two full seasons of no TJ Warren. Um, you know, I guess the quote unquote good thing is that he's not under contract after this season. So you, the Pacers have more information about his health, you would assume than any other franchise in the league so they're in a better position to make a decision in the offseason about what to do with him. You have to assume he's going to have to sign some kind of, you know, much much smaller prove it deal in terms of being able to get healthy. Um but at the same time, he was a piece, you know, and a valuable piece um for the Pacers that you just don't think I mean you can't think that they have anymore at this point.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, at this point I would I would offer him, I don't know, one year 10 million at the most at the most i'm thinking five <laughs> yeah i mean i don't even know if he's worth that but i, I just kind of look at how the, the landscape of the nba is and and you know you got guys who aren't even all-stars anymore who are making you know huge money these days um but i would say the same thing i mean it's got to be on the lower end um i think even he recognizes that i don't think that you know he's like not playing on purpose for this quote unquote tank and all the other crazy stuff. Um, but it has been unique to just see how, you know, things just kinda keep popping up for this team. I mean, at this point in the season, you would like to see what you have and you still can't really see what you have. So if you ask me if do I think TJ Warren's gonna play this year, I would say no. I've seen him on road trips. Um I've seen him like working, you know, on his game, doing one on one and whatever else and according to Carlisle, having lim- limited practices. But when I asked Carlisle directly at practice, you know, is there any t- update on TJ Warren where you have one of the biggest gaps of, of the year remaining and you say there's no update at all, Um, that's pretty bad. Like that, that, that basically says to me, like, oh, this guy's not playing. I mean, so I don't yeah, know. I gonna see- think- Go ahead. I'm sorry. I would think that. Both Warren
0: and the Pacers would want to see him on the court at this point, just to see. You know, assuming he's healthy or close to healthy or whatever. Um, you know, the other thing is it's a foot injury. You can't, you can't put him out there unless he's healthy and able to play. I mean, you just can't risk re-injuring uh, a foot, especially. You know, and again, it, you you watch these guys on the court. If You're watching them on TV. It's easy to think they're semi-normal-sized human beings. No, I mean, see, Warren is you know six seven and and 230 pounds. I mean, that's a lot of weight to be putting on your foot, um, especially if it's got a, a fracture in it or whatever. So, uh, um, exactly. But you got to think he wants to get back out there to prove he can play because, you know, that's his salary. is directly tied to that. Um, and even though, yeah, it, it would if you know, a healthy TJ Warren, the Pacers would win more games, but you're at the point now where I think the value of seeing him play a little bit far outweighs the, you know, another loss to try to get down. It doesn't seem like you're going to get lower than fifth where you're at currently. So, um,
1: Yeah, I know everyone's always in my mentions every time they lose a game. You know, the tank is on, the tank is on. We're going to get like the – we're going to get even better. It's like I don't really know how much better you're going to get, like you said. And at some point, I do want to throw this out there. We'll touch on this now when we segue into Tyrese Halliburton. You need some wins for morale. Like, you don't want Tyrese Halliburton going into his uh, first full season with the Pacers next year, you know, with this bad taste in his mouth about how bad the team is. I don't think it will, it will probably look a lot different at the beginning of next year. But still, you need some wins just for the team morale. And um, he'll have the opportunity this weekend without, you know, Brogdon and possibly without Lance Stevenson who's going with an ankle injury to really be the primary ball handler. And Nat, as I alluded to before the podcast started – This this marriage between him and Malcolm Brogdon has not been seamless, as as Rick Carlisle said it would be. It hasn't been as easy because both guys can shoot, dribble, and pass. Like no, it's been very awkward in some instances. Like for the last game Tuesday night against the Cavs, Halliburton scored 617 points in the third quarter, and he didn't take a shot in the fourth quarter until like a last-second heave, which I don't really count. So he basically went shotless and scoreless in the fourth quarter. Or I think he had two points on two free throws or something like that. But still, like, that is very – that's a weird thing to have. So, I think, you know, you could tell Halliburton's getting kind of annoyed with the question because he gets asked it all the time. Like, how do you get paired with, you know, uh, 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 Brogdon and how you all work through it, how you pick your spots. And, I mean, for the main parts of some of these closer games, he's been off ball and it hasn't, you know, gone very well outside of their Orlando game where – Malcolm Brogdon had probably his best game of the season.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're obviously in an interesting spot there. And that, I mean, Brogdon, when he's healthy, is an excellent player. Um, you know, we can debate how much of an impact he has on the team and all that. But but you can't deny um, that he puts up numbers. He is always been a point guard. I mean, he doesn't have to play point guard. He's, you know, he's more of an old-fashioned just guard guard. Mm-hmm. But if you're the Pacers, you want the ball in Halliburton's hands. And you got to figure out that combination if Brogdon is coming back next year, and as far as we know, there's no reason to think otherwise. Um, So, yeah, that's going to be an interesting uh, uh, issue for Carlisle to deal with.
1: Yeah, and I do want to point out, like, you know, with Halliburton, even though I do believe he is too passive sometimes, he's averaging 19 points and 9 assists through 11 games, you know, and he's shooting, like, 50% from the field, Uh, I I want to say 40% from the the three-point line, like 80%, from the free throw line so like he's 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 playing very well you know to be to be critical of him but one thing I have noticed is that maybe they put the ball in Brogdon's hands at the end of games because he's better off the dribble like getting to the rim like if anybody's been watching as much as I have has watched every game you've noticed that Tyrese Halliburton rarely like beats his man off the dribble and gets all the way to the rim for a layup or a foul so I do think that that is a plus to have in your skill set when it's late in the game. Like, you want a guy who can draw fouls and get to the rim. But at the same time, you know, you made this big trade. You got rid of your two-time All-Star. You do want to put the ball in Halliburton's hands. And I'm not saying he has to take every last shot, make every last play, have everything go through him. But I will say you cannot have him, you know, go off in the third quarter and then do nothing in the fourth quarter because he's just standing there waiting for somebody to pass him the ball. I do think it's twofold where they, they have to put him in better positions. And then at the same time, he has to be more aggressive. I do I think it, by nature, he's like a true point guard who wants to pass first. But, I mean, Tyrese, you're not on, you know, you're not Chris Paul. You're not on the Suns where you have all these weapons around you. You're on the Pacers. So, like, usually a shot by you is better than a shot by anybody else, um, you know, if you're open. So, um, that's one thing that he'll have to work through and probably be more aggressive about. But, you know, so far it's been – um. A pretty good marriage, just not like I said, seamless as as Rick Carlos said it would be at the beginning. Well, and they continue
0: to have problems at the end of games. Um, I mean they're what are they four and thirteen now in, in close games. Oh, uh, three
1: and sixteen. Three, believe, is, three and three sixteen in games that are four points or less, decided by four points or less. So they are I mean, it's a running joke at this point. Like if it's a game that's close, you pretty much know who's gonna lose it, and that's that's most likely, you know, the Pacers. So certainly changing who has the ball in their hands at the end of games can't hurt.
0: Um, There's a lot of noise around, uh, you know, in close games, there's a lot of luck involved. At this point, you know, 19 games, 3-16, and you got to think there's more than luck to it. But it's also something that wasn't really a problem last season and has been this season that also makes you think it could easily resolve itself, um, you know, just going into next year. Um, so I don't you know, to me, you know, if you want Bro- you're saying you want Bro- the ball in Brogdon's hands at the end, I'm not sure there's a ton of evidence that that's the best thing for the team, um, although again, it's I mean, he might still be the best option, and they just need more options or more, you know they need to, but uh, but and when you're you're trying to secure um, your lottery status, you know, losing close games is not the worst thing in the world.
1: Exactly. I mean, hey, at the end of the day, the draft does matter. That'll probably be one of their, obviously, I, I believe maybe their biggest move of the off season, biggest decision outside of possibly looking at trades for miles Turner and Malcolm Brogdon. But I mean, that draft matters a lot. And again, after every loss, I got a bunch of uh, fans in my mentions who are very pleased that it, that it worked out that way. So, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody has to worry about the draft positioning because they're not a good team. I think people put a little too much stock into, Willingly losing games and tanking like they're not choosing to lose like they're there. I mean, they're not a good team, so they're going to find ways to lose because that's what bad teams do, frankly. Yeah, and it's interesting.
0: I think uh, I'm certainly no uh, NBA scout, but it seems like there's a big four um, in this draft and the Pacers are currently sitting fifth. So that is definitely something to watch. Uh, they have the extra first round draft pick. So can they move up? Will someone want to trade back? You know, if it really is for good ball, you know, for good players, and then it drops off, um, so it'll and it'll be interesting to watch. And obviously, there's a lot of Jaden Ivey talk, understandably so. You know, another wing player is probably what the Pacers don't need at this point. But there's also, you know, the other uh, top draft picks candidates are big guys. And you know, if the worst thing that comes out of this is the Pacers end up with Jaden Ivey, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good. Uh, uh, you know, worst case scenario. Right, it's a
1: good problem to have. It's a good problem to have.
0: Um, all right. Well, let's. Uh, we also Victor Oladipo, old uh, friend to the Pacers, of course. Victor Oladipo returned. Oh, don't to the court. say that too
1: loud, Nat. They're gonna <laughs> they're gonna like try to find you with a pitchfork.
0: <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, he did not leave here under the best of terms. It was a very strange uh, relationship, as everyone knows. James is not here for that, but is of course familiar with it. Um, but with him back on the court, we figured it was a good time to just touch on how the Pacers ended up doing, um, on that trade. Uh, it was, it was, you know, basically Oladipo for Karis Lavert. Um, Oladipo was a free agent after the season. He certainly wasn't coming back to the Pacers. Uh, so it's, it's really hard to see this and, you know, how this ended as anything other than a win for the Pacers. I mean, they turned Paul George into two all-stars and Sabonis and Oladipo. I think you could argue that Paul George is better than it was, still the better. You know, the, the Thunder got the better end of the deal because it's Paul George. But under the circumstances, the Pacers did really well. And again, under the circumstances, turning um, what was left of Victor Oladipo's career with the, you know, or contract with the Pacers into Karis Lavert, turning Karis Lavert, who is now hurt. Um, with the Cavaliers, and that which I'm sure will surprise uh, all Pacers fans who have followed Karis Lavert's career here, uh, into a first round draft pick that is getting uh, better and better. I believe it was the t- 24th pick when the trade was made. It was up to the 19th pick the last time I saw it, might be 20th or something like that now. Um, but obviously, uh, um, the, you know, and then, you know, and so the Pacers uh, have turned Victor Oladipo, who clearly did not want to be here. Um, into a first round draft pick and a high end a second round pick, which is going to be 31, 32, something like that. Um, I think you got if you're a Pacers fan, you got to be happy with the outcome uh, in that, you know, based on how things came, uh, you know, fell out, how they finished up.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, Victor's been back for two games now, averaging seven points in about 15 minutes a uh, game. He's probably on a minutes restriction right now. Um, he looks okay. Um, and for the situation he's in now, he has way less expectations than, or really burden than he would have if he was still with the Pacers. I mean, the Miami Heat are one of the best teams in the Easter conference. Uh, they've been to the finals before. It's so like anything he gives them at this point, basically like a bonus. And then looking at Karras, he's, I think he's missed the last, I don't think, I know he's missed the last seven games with the right foot sprain. I believe to something with his right foot. Um, he looked to be in pretty good spirits when he was here. Um, A few days ago for the Cavs game, doesn't seem to be anything serious. But like you said, it kind of just falls in line with who he is. Like, he's never going to be a guy that plays 75 games a year. Like, he's going to miss time. That's just the Karras LaVert experience. But he's also in a situation where his role is drastically different. Um, he's not expected to be the man. I don't know if he could be the man really anywhere. Over there, he can be a good sixth man or, or or you know, an uh, offensive spark. Um, but like you said, the, the pieces they got back um, are still kind of filling out. We'll see as far as how the draft goes and those experiences um, and, and how the draft picks kind of play out. But I would be pretty pleased with where they are now as opposed to where they are when, you know, this thing starts to kind of fall apart with Oladipo and, and obviously with with Laverde. And then now you got, as, you know, Pacers president Kevin Pritchard has said, you got your Andrew Luck, you got your Peyton Manning. And. <laughs> Tyrese Halliburton, which I'm not like super high on that analogy, just because I think, you know, Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck both came in with extremely high expectations to be the guy. Tyrese is, you know, a good player. Is he going to be like a all-star MVP, a you know, perennial all-star MVP type of cap, cap type of player? I don't know about that, but you know, we'll see. Um, he, he definitely got you know some upside to him. And, um, you know, along with some other guys on the team, you know, Isaiah Jackson, uh, you know, Jalen Smith, if they can afford to keep him, um, Chris Duarte and others. So it is a, a good situation to be in for the Pacers. Um, well, I'll put it like this. It's as good a situation you can be in for a team as bad as them. That's kind of how <laughs> I
0: it. Yeah, you look at the, the, the Depot stuff. And, I, I mean, the, on the one hand, and I've said this, something along these lines before, I don't think you can – Criticize Pritchard like for the individual move because I think they 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 came out ahead. I don't know if they came out necessarily ahead, but you know they certainly are doing better than if they had kept Oladipo um, by a long shot. At the same time, as a small market team, you know it it does call into question where you're turning Oladipo, who was an all-star, into Karis Levert, who's a good player but not an all-star, and you're turning him into a. You know the the twentieth pick in the draft or something like that, which may end up being nothing. Um, so, right. it, uh, it's a tough spot to be in when, when you, you basically your margin for error is so thin. You've got to you've got to hit on one of those two draft picks. And your odds of hitting on the, one of those two draft picks, I mean, its it, they're okay, but it, it's not – you're not uh, – you know, the probably it's less likely you're going to get a player as good as LaVert or Oladipo than it is that you're going to find one. And at those – you know, at that kind of pick, those two – you know, the number 20 pick and the number 31, 32, whatever it's going to end up being from the Rockets. Um, exactly. so Exactly. It's a tough spot to be in, uh, you know, when you're when you're a small market team, because as everyone knows, you don't have that margin for error. But uh, uh, well, let's talk to something a little bit more positive, which would be your your big piece on Keeper Sykes, the, uh, you know, backed up guard for the Pacers right now. But he's got an incredible backstory. Uh, Just sort of uh, everyone listening. You should go to com and check it out on our Pacers page. But just sort of take us through it. How did that story when did you first get the idea for the story and how did it all come together?
1: Yeah, so this was insane. And one, one, I want to say give, big shout out to, to Nat for, uh, you know, dealing with my multiple pump fakes and when I was going to turn the story in. Because every time I thought I was getting close to being done, I would talk to Kiefer, clear up some details, and he'd drop a gem. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you didn't tell me this at the beginning, my man? Like, you, you, you know, I'm going the story. You didn't think this part about, you know, whatever else wasn't important? Um, but I was proud to finally get it done. Couldn't tell at all. There was a lot of stuff I left on the chopping block. Um, but the idea for the story started when we first got a chance to interview him after he got picked up originally by the Pacers. Um, and without well originally, but I will say he got uh, picked up uh, during the middle of the season because he was with the team during preseason, he got cut. Then he came back after playing well with the Mad Ants. And he, you know, on the first day, I believe he said something like, you know, I got one of the best stories ever. And I remembered him from the TBT tournament where he made this million-dollar shot. And I'm like, okay, this guy's from Chicago. I know a little bit about, about him. And they mentioned the documentary about him, Shytown, town which is on Amazon Prime. Um, I watched that about a week after I met him. And from there, the wheels started turning. I'm like, you know what? It would be really cool to kind of dive into everything in this documentary and kind of pick up where the documentary left off, which was him going from high school star to playing in South Korea. And um, as I'm sure you saw in that, like the story is incredible. Like, I mean, the stuff that he went through, um, the passing of his father after his freshman year, James Sykes, who was the inspiration, um, and kind of navigating the grief of that. And then also, um, you know, his, his mom raising both of his children while he was in college and overseas. You know, Kiefer had his first child when he was 16 second child when he was 21. Um, And he was saying, like, and this I didn't put this in the story, but he was saying, like, a lot of people expected that to be like his downfall, like being a young parent, having a kid really young, and um, not being able to sustain the, you know, work-life balance of trying to chase your NBA dream, chase your basketball dream, and raise your kids and be a great father. And he's a really good father, but he had a lot of help from his mom. And then it kind of segues also into his overseas journey, um, playing for an Italian team, and you know, not getting paid one time, losing out on fifty, forty, fifty grand, as he as he put it, um, and 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 still staying overseas, and and oh, it was it was incredible. I mean, there are so many gems, and you, and the the hardest part when you do a long form piece, as you know, Nat, is like, okay, you got all this information. What part is the best part? Like, what parts do I leave in, and what parts do I do? Do I leave out? I mean. There, there there's certain things where I was just like, I, I, can't tell at all. Like, even for example, he's living here now in Indianapolis with his, um, with his sister and his son, and then his, his daughter actually lives, I believe, in Arizona, with the, with his, uh, with his child's mother. Like, both of his children have the same mom, and for now, she, she, they had to separate because of his situation playing in the NBA. And he said the plan next year is to for next season or even for wherever he is, whether it's with the pace of someone else, is to have his family all kind of be back together. But for now, he had to just do it that way to maintain. And, you know, so it was a it was a fun story to put together, one that very um, triumphant, I would say. Um, and the the biggest, I'll press the coolest quote out of the whole thing, probably the last quote, which is why I put it there. He was telling me he calls this thing the hero's journey. If you want into comics, you kind of know the hero's journey. You the hero the hero goes off you they face adversity and they come back throughout this really crazy you know timeline as a transformed person and for him one of the coolest quotes is him saying like I got cut by the Pacers you know during the preseason or whatever I had a I had a camp to do you know uh, for for one of my uh, you know youth groups or whatever and I told him, you know hey yesterday I got cut by the Pacers but I'm going to keep trying to make it to the NBA and then being able to come back later at a different camp and tell him I made it so that was a, it was a heck of a story, man. Heck of a ride. Um, and again, it just took me so long to put it together because there's so many layers to his story of being doubted, of being overseas, of betting on himself, um, and then seeing his reaction to the story. His mom, his a high school coach, Australian coach, college coach, all these things, and seeing them kind of ah uh, be able to see it and and and, and relive it in a sense uh, was was pretty awesome. So. It's one of those stories where I think, you know, it's probably going to stick with me for a while. And I'll probably always remember that one just because that was my first, like, true long form piece as an NBA writer. And, it,
0: yeah, what really struck me reading it uh, and going through the process with you is, I mean, there really was no reason to think he was going to make it. <laughs> I, mean, it yeah. wasn't, I mean, obviously... <laughs> A a really you know a great high school basketball player, but he's he's 5'10", 5'11". It's really hard to make it in the NBA at that size. Mm-hmm. And then he goes and plays at Wisconsin Green Bay again, Division One. Uh, that you know, just being a Division One basketball player is a big deal. puts you in, uh, you know, at the very elite uh, level of basketball players in the country. Yep. But it's still Wisconsin Green Bay. It's not producing a ton of uh, NBA players. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's, you know, he, he went in, he was a year, basically a year younger than most people when he went into Wisconsin Green Bay. But he's 27, 28 now. 28, yeah. I mean, so that means he's been trying to, you know, he's been on this road for seven years or whatever. That's a long time to dedicate yourself to professional basketball um, without being in the NBA. And then to finally make it, I mean, there, you know, again, he bounced around a little bit in camps and there's lots of guys who do that. But to then finally get a chance to to play, I mean, just really does speak to his, uh, you know, just the, the passion, the importance, all of that stuff uh, of what this meant to him.
1: Yeah. And the biggest thing is that um, it wasn't about the money for him. Like he could have made um, a very good living and, and been very have had a very, you know, structured and sustained career probably in Europe making, you know, six figures. But he turned down more money. Um, to, to come back and play, you know, in in the G League and to get a chance to kind of come back home. He was saying, like, even his decision to go to Australia was probably due to COVID. The restrictions were a lot um, heavier than the rest of the world at that time, so they had a lot less cases going on because they were just a lot more diligent about it when he went and played down under, as they say. And, um, you know, he was telling me, you know, I could have stayed in Europe, I could have made more money, but I wanted to go to the the the, the National Basketball League because over there... Um, that's where Lamelo Ball played. That's where Jay Sean Tate, who plays for the the Houston Rockets, played, and a few other NBA players got a chance to be seen by some scouts and just the connection of even a guy like Josh Giddy, who's a rookie for the Oklahoma City Thunder, a promising rookie. He's an Australian. He played in that league. So again, it's just being able to have, you know, an NBA connection there. And and again, it was it's it's remarkable. I mean, he said he's gonna have a part two to the documentary that'll be coming out. Um, sometime before this year is out, probably towards the end of twenty twenty two, and it's just it's it's incredible stuff. I mean, he went toe to toe with Steph at, at the Chase Center. I mean, he didn't. He, I mean, Steph had thirty nine in that game. I believe Kiefer might have had ten points, if that. But he hit the dagger three, and then and then the dagger layup to to knock off the three point king on the road with with no starters that game. I remember that was a game where they literally had no projected starters for this season available to them. And they found a way to win the game, and Kiefer hits the biggest shots of the night. So outside of Justin Holiday's three three that sent it to overtime, in overtime, Kiefer Sykes was the closer. So even I had a photo that I posted on Instagram. I tagged him, and he, you know, he asked me for it. He's like, "Hey man, like, you know, uh, I think he reposted it, and he'll probably ask for the photo." And I try to send the guys photos if they ever want them. But it's him and like Steph Curry side by side, and they're almost like doing the same thing, like during a free throw or something. They're all they're both pointing to like. The free throw line, their assignments, and you could see them doing the same thing, same mannerisms, side by side. And there's one guy who has become a superstar. And there's one guy who had to scrap and scrape and grind to even be on that floor. So it was awesome. And I also got a pretty cool shot of him, uh, you know, in Atlanta where he, he backdoor uh, cut on, on Trey Young and then went up and dunked it. You know, he's got like two dunks in his NBA career. He dunked on a guy, he dunked on Isaac Okoro. Uh, From Cleveland, and then went back door and dunked it, you know, in the face of basically the the Atlanta Hawks fans, and kind of told Trey Young, "I'm here too." So, it it was awesome to see, you know, the rise and to have a chance, at least from my perspective, to get out of the, you know, this guy played good, this guy played bad analysis of the day-to-day beat grind, and to tell a real story. I mean, you saw net like the last. I don't. I don't even think I mentioned his stats until like the last paragraph, or maybe the penultimate you know paragraph so uh, there's not much there that would, would really you know make you say this is a stats heavy story because it's not about the stats it's about this incredible journey where the guy you know went toe-to-toe with you know some of the best and, and, and ended up making it you know to the NBA and, and, and then the the best part is or at least the, the theme is that he still hasn't really made it you know that like I mean you know his country situation he's not guaranteed anything beyond this season. So he's going to be back in the same boat after this season, scrapping to be in the NBA and trying to prove himself all over again. And, and at this point, I'm like, I, I kind of joke with him, and he laughed about it. It's like if it was, if it was easy, it wouldn't be for Kiefer Sykes because at this point, I mean, he's been through everything. Like when he says, like, I, I, I've, I've paid every cost, I, I've been through it all, he called himself a superhero. Um, That's a guy who, I mean, he has every right to call himself that because – for everything he's done, for how big his heart is, um, it's hard to, to to root against a guy like that.
0: I thought it was also interesting that he kept telling you, "Hey, call this coach, call that coach," um, and then all those coaches, uh, you know, <laughs> called you back, even though wherever they were, wherever they were, and they were spread across the world. Um, yeah, <laughs> but but just it tells you, I think, something about who he is as a person that he wants you to talk to these guys, and these guys are going to go out of their way. Um, to, to return calls and make sure they, they you know, because they want to talk about Kiefer Sykes. And this is a situation where, I mean, most of these people you're talking to are pro coaches or whatever, who he only uh, worked with for a year or a season, yeah. less than a year. So to make that kind of impression, um,
1: I mean, I think that just speaks to to who he is, uh, yeah. you know, as a person. And it's it's cool to also to see, like, the tangent connections, you know. You got Tyrese Halliburton calling him in a GB legend. And, oh yeah, yeah. you know, when I started this story, Tyrese Halliburton, I believe, wasn't even on the Pacers, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that, you know, you had a Wisconsin native be able to get, get traded to the Pacers. And he knows of Kiefer Sykes. Like, I didn't put this in the story, but he was saying, like, beyond being a GB legend, he was like, you know, when when Kiefer, when you got an offer, because I believe he got an offer from Wisconsin Green Bay being a Wisconsin native, he's like, everyone in my area, when they got an offer from Green Bay, it was like, you got an offer from Kiefer Sykes school. That's the school that got Keith Kiefer Sykes. Like He's, he's kind of like known in that area. And then also, he went toe-to-toe with Malcolm Brogdon back when they were in college and was the best player on the floor. Had 21 points and 10 assists and, and, and knocked off Virginia, um, who's known for being knocked off, by the way. A little dig at Malcolm Brogdon. Don't get too personal. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, those are the things that that, that you don't really know you're going to get when you're diving into a story. And, you, and, and part of it is probably luck or the universe, fate, whatever you want to call it, where you just happen to have a guy on the team years later you know your teammates, and and I don't even think anybody knew about that game or even remembered that game until I, I was reading a, a previous story about Kiefer Sykes, I believe in the Chicago Tribune or something, where it mentioned that game. I brought it up to Malcolm. He's like, "Oh yeah, we talked about that. Like when he got here, like, do does he remember that game?" And so it was really cool, it was really fun to kind of see the connections, um, and again, see this rise through so much adversity, and to see how big his heart is, because one of the biggest things that matters to Kiefer. Beyond basketball, or not really basketball, but beyond his individual's career is his impact. Like he, he does a bunch of youth camps. He did it before he was in the NBA. Um, he'll continue to do them long after I believe he's in the NBA. I, I believe at the at the heart of what he wants to do, will be something along the lines of motivational speaker, youth center leader, or something because he just loves kids. Um, and even some of his uh, you know, close family and friends was telling me like there's times where Kiefer could go and work out with other pros or NBA players, but he'll work out with the local high schools in Chicago. He'll work out with, you know, grade school kids just to tell them, like, hey, uh, you know, you can do it too. So um, it was a fun story, one of those ones that makes you feel good about life, especially in a season like this. You know, you got to find things that are positive, um, which can be hard when there's a lot of losses kind of stacking up. But um, I, I did thank him for trusting me, and I believe – um, through that story, you know, it'll probably impact a, a few more lives just because, as he put it, you know, that's the, that's the hero's journey and you got a chance to kind of get a glimpse of it. So it sounds better now, but it was, it was, you know, having some candid conversations with him, it was awesome to kind of get him to kind of peel back the curtain of the doubt, the the not knowing, the, the you know, the tenacious self-belief when he was counted out overseas and, and even just the culture shock of going to South Korea. Like <laughs> I was asking him, like, dude, you could go anywhere you know, overseas, and you went South Korea at first? He was like, yeah, man, that was the one I I wanted, the the hardest challenge. I thought it would be the best fit, and he goes over there and can't speak any language, Nat. Never (laughs) knew the language. He was telling me he never knew what his teammates said, so, you know, he said his only quote-unquote friend was his translator, which was his driver, because he couldn't even drive over there because they drive on different side of the street. So um, he's got a a heck of a story, man, and like you said, it was cool to see so many people being willing to to talk to me, to work with me. I mean, Australia, I believe, is like 11 or 12 hours ahead. So I was uh I was gonna catch a flight actually. The last trip I went on, I was going to, I believe it was Orlando, and I had to get catch a flight at like 5 a.m. or something. I was, I was I was up early, 4 a.m. our time. And I was, you know, on the WhatsApp, you know, messaging his his uh his Australian GM and the GM put me in contact with the coach and you know, everyone's calling me mate, you know, because that's that's their little <laughs> slingo, their their lingo or whatever. And they all were so excited to talk about Kiefer and the impact he had on one season, one expansion, you know, team in their second year, taking a bet on Kiefer Sykes. And I could go on and on, but just read the story, subscribe to Indy Star, not for just my work, but the, those are the type of stories you want to tell. And I believe that matter more than, again, the day-to-day injury update. Like, of course, I'm going to do that because that's the job, but I think those stories – um being able to mix in some of those bigger pieces definitely like you know makes this season more worthwhile from a fan standpoint and from a writer standpoint
0: well as uh, James said please go to indystar.com and check out the story and all of James's work uh, no one uh, covers the pacers like Star, and thank you for listening to the pacing the pacers podcast